Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, My guest today is Chris Peng. He's the co-founder and CEO of LabFront. It's a startup working to revolutionize health research by helping academic researchers efficiently collect and analyze biomarker data from consumer wearables. You know, I'm sure people have seen like continuous glucose monitors and Aura Ring and Fitbits and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to get into that. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about your background first. Like, how did you get into this space? You know, what were you doing before? Yeah, so my journey into this really started basically as a young child. My dad is a researcher. He was the former head of the Center for Dynamical Biomarkers at, at Beth Israel, so Harvard Medical School. And I spent my time all around labs and research labs and, and health space. And one of the main issues I saw was that we really don't really have this healthcare system, right? It's, a, it's more of a sick care system. You probably keep hearing this all the time, but you know we have a broken healthcare system. And a lot of the things that actually could be saving us and helping us are in research and development and actually are published, but there's just no way to get it to the consumers. And so from myself realizing that there's this huge gap in between where research is and the actual medical applications, that's where I saw, oh, that's kind of where we can make the biggest impact. And so when we started from that direction, we ended up moving slowly into the actual academic health space, realizing that, you know, to the medical system itself is it's kind of broken. It's hard to fix directly. So you have to circumvent it and maybe trickle in from the side. But my personal background is electrical engineering and and dro- I dropped out. I went to school at McGill. I dropped out in my fourth year, tried to spend some time figuring out what I wanted to do. Lived in Thailand as a volunteer, worked on a Tricorder X Prize competition. Was part oh, really? of it, was that, it was like, yeah. like Peter Diamandis and the X Prize. That was, that was, yeah, exactly. So that was their, one of their earlier X Prizes, uh, Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize, was a $10 million prize back then, $10 million is a lot. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a couple questions about that, because I saw that announcement years ago, so that's really cool that you participated in it. If you don't mind, maybe a, a couple of cool things that came of it. Definitely. So basically, the competition itself, for everyone that doesn't know, is to inspired by Star Trek. Uh, in Star Trek, Bones uh, McCoy uses a device called the the tricorder, and the medical tricorder was basically this small diagnostic, looked like a handset ba- back. Uh, this is a uh, you know this is a long time ago, and as they were able to diagnose any type of disease and also help treatment with this like little mobile sized device. And so the idea it was inspired by that to create a, a medical device that was able to diagnose twelve. And they picked 12 very different, completely different diseases. So it had things like sleep apnea, it had atrial fibrillation, it had skin cancer, ear infection, iron deficiency. So they basically picked the gambit on all these different different things so it could model the idea that this could be extended to diagnose and treat hundreds, if not thousands of diseases. So that was the competition. And, and at that time, I joined HTC, which was sponsoring actually my dad uh, bid into this competition. And my dad represented 
the Center for Dynamic Biomarkers. Our group basically consisted of uh, both academic researchers and also industry you know, consumer tech specialists. And we we're using a lot of the technology available at that time. And this is, you know, still the early days of wearables. This is the competition I think started around 2012. I joined the, around 2013 and basically using the sensors that they could capture the data to do automatic decision trees, diagnosis, and, and very light AI. And basically from that experience, you know, we ended up finishing as, a, as a, one of the finalists, second place. And really what we learned was all this technology is already available, but there's just very few systems that bring it all together. And there was a lot of potential. And, and so we were very excited after that back then to, to actually make this mass scale and, and launch it. Unfortunately, the actual business of doing that, you know, requires large amounts of capital and, and also an investment that probably wouldn't pay off for long terms. But that actually kind of started to shape how I kind of saw a lot of the problems that we need to solve, which is why, you know, I, I started approaching this problem in within within research, which is, which is most of these problems that really need solving require such a long timeline that most businesses aren't really willing to you know, invest in it. But if you look at the long term, if you look at the long term value creation, there is a, a very like sustainable, very powerful business there. But you just need mm -hmm. to be have the grit to persevere in, in that space. Okay. So that's what inspired you to co-found Labfront is the tricorder. Maybe it was too ambitious or whatever it may be, but I, I now have a feel for how to do this. So I'm going to tackle it. Exactly. A lot of the things that we saw was that there, the, you know, hardware was getting better and better, but the software infrastructure that linked everything together was actually missing layer. So, you know, you have your Aura Rings, they're, you know, great products. You have your Dexcoms, another great product. You know, you have your garments, but nothing really brings that all together and looks at it contextually from the lens of all centers, right? So, you know, Aura's focused on the data they get, Dexcom focused on the glucose side, you know, and, and everyone's kind of looking in their own silo. But uh, actually, a lot of times diseases are like hidden in between these silos, right? They're the things between that that define our health. So that's kind of where we first understood this is something really important. And this infrastructure was really important. But then actually trying to do it, it directly, it's it's really hard to make a healthcare business or any kind of, because it's all about reimbursements. It's all about fitting into the existing system. So we did try out something in 2019 to try to directly approach something, built a sleep solution. I, I still think it's a very viable product, but back then, that was pre-COVID-19. The investors I were going to said that, you know, there's no way anyone's going to do telemedicine. Telemedicine is not a thing. Obviously, we know that changed with COVID, but we were a little bit, I guess, too early. And, and the product itself was a little bit, you know, it, to break into the system, just, it was a little bit difficult. So what we end up realizing is we needed to find something that had a direct value to their customers because in the end, most times consumers uh, in healthcare systems, they don't actually pay it, right? So it's the insurance companies that pay. So it's one of those dynamics where you, you can serve the customer great, but the person actually footing the bill might not care or might not really willing to pay. So that kind of brought us eventually to LabFront, which is a solution directly aimed at the research side where we could help academics basically 10x their workflows, make it a lot easier to collect data, analyze data, manage the you know, the data, the project, the research project, all in one place, offering them a solution at the same time, being able to actually slowly make a difference uh, and helping the you know, entire establishment understand more about the digital biomarkers and, and our, our human physiology. So what is the, the flagship product or the first product, the web front that's the furthest along? What does it do? Yeah, so basically, it's a research management solution. So it's it's a, what a bit what it does is imagine you're running a clinical trial or you're running any type of research project, right? So you've you know any time the audience has heard you know oh 
caffeine is good for you or red wine is good for you or this is bad for you. There was some kind of study, not necessarily a clinical trial, but some kind of study that looked into this information, right? And then so we basically make the software to help you manage that study. So if you're doing a study like that, it could be maybe 50 people, you know, 50 participants that you're, you're asking them to, you know, do different tasks. It could be hundreds or even thousands of participants. How do you kind of manage that in a kind of cost efficient way? So currently for clinical trials, even today, a lot of clinical trials are done very much manually by hand. Again, there's lots of money going to pharmaceuticals and they can pay for some of these things, but it's very ineffective, right? It's very inefficient. There's there's essentially research assistants that are just calling people up every day. I'm like, hey, did you take your medication yet? Did you take your medication yet? Just to make mm-hmm. to ensure adherence. Laugh run, what we do is we help researchers create an app this completely uh, no code. So they just go inside. It's like building a website. They build a little app and that app is designed for their project. So what they want the participants to do at home. So, you know, they could be taking medication. It could be doing yoga. It can be, you know, measuring whatever. And we link it with wearable devices. So the current devices that we support and our partners are Garmin, Dexcom, and uh, MoveSense. And we have a few more coming soon and I, I can't really announce yet, but a lot basically continuous glucose. Garmin has blood pressure as, long, as well as a smart scale, as long as obviously everyone knows about their fitness trackers wearables. On the other side, MoveSense has an ECG and an IMU sensor, so there's movement sensor. So basically, we can capture all this different information from devices and then automatically transfer that for the researchers so they can see it. So we basically abstract the entire layer of you know managing this process, you know reminders, all those things, uh, and basically get it to the point where the data is in your system. And then now, we're, right now, what we're building is the analysis engine. So not only can you collect this data, manage this data, but also you can analyze it directly within LabFront. Because what we found is the majority of researchers, especially when they're starting out in their careers, they just have too many things they need to do, right? They need to, you know, they need to teach courses. They might be clinicians, uh, you know, practicing. They might be... Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What's the problem in the um, in a clinical trial? Let's say I got 50 people or 100 people in the cohort. They got wearables. Uh, so- what, what else is needed now that's what what's so hard about it? They've got wearables, let's say. Yeah, so in general, for a clinical trial, it's just getting the data itself is kind of a small pain. And the issues that we're seeing right now is everyone kind of has to has their own solution to, and, and essentially their solution works for their specific use case. Mm-hmm. In general, which is a smaller percentage of our audience, most of our customers are actually on the epidemiological trial. You know, they, you know, large cohorts, they're managing these people and they don't necessarily have a lot of budget per person, but they still are doing very, very important research. That's that side of things there when they're running with a smaller budget, that's where we, where our real advantage comes in because we can essentially abstract away, you know, the need to hire 
research assistants and the need to hire data scientists. So I was focused on that side because I think as much as, as important as clinical trials are, there are already a lot of people working in that space versus on the other side of academic research, the psychology, the physiology studies, the sports science, yeah, you know, those those things right now, they get a lot less industry attention, a lot less industry funding, and they're the ones that are struggling the most. So what, what are the particulars that make you know, the current device is not useful for other clinical trials. Like, what is it about yours that makes it modular, you know, where different use cases can use it where other ones can't? Yeah, so that kind of comes to the way that we collect and analyze a data layer. So essentially, if you just take the data as it is, so let's take Garmin, for example. If you're not an expert in understanding wearable data, the physiology, then you're, you, let's say you want something like uh, approximating stress, right? You can approximate stress through heart rate variability, However, you also need to know that heart rate variability when you're when you're capturing, you know, you captures beat to beat interval. So each each individual beat of the heart when you when it's done on a wrist, which is with a PPG sensor, there depending on the different things that are happening, there's more or less noise, which makes that you know that that signal less or more or less you know reliable. And that depends on understanding you know the context of what you're studying. So some things it doesn't really matter. Some things it does. So for us, what we do is we kind of take the entire, you know, that all that guesswork out of it because we, you know, been working in this for a long time. Uh, so I mentioned yeah. my my father was the co-director of the Center for Dynamical Biomarkers. So they were working with wearables, you know, for the last 30 years back when wearables were, were you know, backpacks. You know, they weren't even, they weren't read very much wearables. They were just computers uh, that you could wear. And so that accumulated experience helps us understand what you need and and just completely like you click a button and you get the data that you want in the and you remove the data that you can't use based off of your use case so that itself is an expertise and 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 the skill that it takes it's i don't it's i won't say it's impossible it's definitely not impossible it's just a lot of time involved so if we can just completely remove that that saves researchers a ton of time a ton of learning and they can just get what they actually focus on you know if they're a psychology researcher they don't want to have to learn about the physiology of you know heart rate variability slash the sensor dynamics of these you know engineering terminology and skills to do their psychology research so that's kind of what we offer okay i mean what have the uh, the researchers told you like has this been used on you know various research projects and uh do they get the funding to work with you by, you know, in the grant application itself? Like, let's say they're applying to the, you know, NIH. Is there a provision in the grant where they include, let's say, your fees for your technology? Yeah, this is that's a great question. So we've been around since 2021. We have over 100 research partners. So those ones, so institutional partners from over 1,000 researchers. So that's institutions that most you, you will heard of, uh, Stanford, Harvard, MIT, they're all research collaborators. The funding side is a little bit tricky because we're not, we, we replace multiple parts of the a system uh, that they have. But so the issue that we run into right now is that the researchers don't necessarily know the solution exists and they don't necessarily know where you know, what, what part of the budget it should come from. And so what we really do is we kind of make their research assistant much, much, much more powerful because they are essentially able to do a lot more uh, and automate a lot more things. And then we also remove the need for a lot of research projects to have to have uh, a data scientist on, on the team, uh, which is a big part of the budget. So, but however, that is a little bit tricky sometimes when, when you're, you know, writing these grants, because essentially this kind of, you know, data science as a service or these kind of like fractional services, you know, fractional data scientists is not something that traditionally has been seen in, in from this perspective as, as a software service, even though the way they've done before is essentially, oh, we'll try to get like 30% of this, you know, this professor's time because he's an expert in this. That's how it would translate from the uh, traditional system. 
why wouldn't you need a data scientist? Do you, do you have like a physical fractional experiment design on board with your system, you know, to help the researchers yeah, I, actually again, know how big the cohort has to be and what data they collect. So again, it's fractional and it's not too much effort. Exactly. Exactly. We, we, instead of, uh, what we realized is that for the most part, a lot of studies can be simplified in, in terms of to see, looking at what they actually need to see. So if you, for example, if you have a study that has different groups, like your intervention group, a control group, placebo group, you need to, it's always good to kind of look through that and compare that to make sure you have a statistical, statistical significant and, you know, a complete and, and diverse sample, right? So you want to just make sure there's no outliers within there or there's limited outliers. And then the majority are, you know, was basically uh, normalized before you actually run the research. And so th things like that, that can be automated. The process can be automated. And then what we've also found that as like for many studies, you know, they're looking at, I have this intervention. I want to look at the before and after this intervention. Okay, so that's that can be automated. We just basically you within Lafron, you have a marker when this the intervention when the something happens, and then you just compare the data before and after. Or you have something that's like something that's continuous, right? You're you're taking this, uh, you're doing this uh, meditation over six six weeks. Okay, so let's look at the slope um, of change over whatever variable that you're interested in looking at. And instead of a researcher looking at it one by one, calculating it, doing all the you know all the work to figure it out, you know, within one click, we can run it across all variables and then look at and tell you, oh, these are the ones that are interesting, or these are the ones have some you know these are have good p values in terms of you know there's some you know some very very clear changes. Take a look, highlight it, and then let them decide which ones to use. Like we don't decide for them, but we just do a lot of the grunt work. So that makes it a system for them that they can just click around and figure out, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to look into more. And, you know, basically it does remove a lot of the work that the data scientist or the engineer has to, usually does. Um, are there situations where uh, they require a neutral third party to keep custody of the data so they can't, you know, fudge the experiments? And there, I don't know if there's any grants that stipulate that, but could your technology be used in that kind of role? as like a compliance type thing or a data backup as well as collection? Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a great time to talk about this, especially in light of there's quite a, been quite a few academic research scandals in the past uh, couple years where there have been people fudging data and very prominent researchers fudging data. And uh, that is a, this is a real problem. And it's a real problem uh, that if you have a auditable you know, a data trail, which we do within Lafron, it makes it a lot harder to do this. So basically, there's also been a movement from the NIH that I think is the, called the data management and sharing a provision where they want, you know, you researchers to actually share their data, at least have a way for peer reviewers to actually, you know, figure that's basically a reverse engineer, like, retest out this study, uh, as well as letting other people have access to be able to build upon it themselves. So we built Lafron in mind with the future, which is uh, we think is a much more open, much more sharing, much more collaborative future. Or that's what we hope for. And so, you know, partially, yes, we, you know, it, it will affect, uh, we can kind of mitigate some, uh, a lot, a lot more of the, you know, the uh, fudging of data, essentially, like, you know, we can tell exactly if you're, you know, if there's been changes and it's a lot harder to mess with Lafron data instead of just adjusting, uh, you know, an Excel sheet, which was what was done in, in a lot of these cases, you know, they would have to create accounts, you know, create, you know, write, sign, you know, fake informed consent. They basically need to create fake 
participants. And when that's when it makes it really difficult to kind of change your stuff, that's what we see the deterrent. It's not it's when it's too easy and it's like, oh, just one you just change one number here and everything's fine. You know, that's that's when we see like what happens in this very is a very cutthroat academic world. Um, we have to recognize that, you know, they're they have these pressures. So if we kind of just make it a little bit easier for them to to have their keep their academic rigor, it, it'll go a long way to just incentivizing the behavior we want. Um, what about the speed of analysis? Um, you know, budgets are always a concern. If your tool is able to very early on detect true signal versus no signal, maybe you abandon a test and don't go all the way and it saves you money because it has no significance to it. Maybe um, you end a test early because it has an incredibly strong signal. Uh, is there any of that that's packaged in your you know, analytics pack that would help? Yeah, so that's a, so, so part of our direction, and, and I, I think you're on to a really good point, which is the future of research. Now, there are research studies, you know, clinical trials. They have to run their, they have to be blinded, and they have to run their course before they look at the data to make sure there's no bias. But then there's other studies that you're essentially just like observing, and if you're observing, you you, you know, as you learn more, you can add more markers into your observation that you maybe did not plan for in the beginning. And in in the traditional way, it's really hard to do that, right? It's like you have to, you know, completely change your protocols, you need to tell update participants what they need to do, you know, and it makes it kind of difficult to kind of run this kind of live project and, and learn from and iterate while you're doing it, which makes it very inefficient. Laughfront, we kind of work towards that direction of the future where you are kind of analyzing your data while you're going along, right? So you're looking at this and you realize that, oh, I'm really like, there's some in- interesting thing happening with sleep, but sleep was never the focus of this study and I didn't put enough markers into sleep. So maybe I'll add another questionnaire here or I'll just turn up the frequency for some of the data collection or maybe I'll add a sleep test. And you can do that automatically within LabFriend without basically doing anything. And the participants themselves, they just get an update and they say, oh, you've got a couple new you know, tasks you need to do. Things, small things have changed. Not, not a big deal. Here's what you need to do now for this week. And so kind of going in the line, going along the lines of a living project, you know, a project that's continuously iterating. We were kind of seeing this like continuous iteration direction. And essentially for projects like, you know, large generational studies like the Framingham study, this would be very useful for, you know, they can keep like every, you know, every six months they could have add a new biomarker or, or reduce one or change one or, you know, add some more metrics to kind of study something different or study something more. And so that's kind of, uh, it's already built in because, you know, it's very simple to execute something like that. Right now, it's more that most uh, researchers aren't doing that because it's so, it has been so difficult to analyze data. So you mentioned before, you know, the data analysis and the time. There's basically 50% of the time that researchers spending from the data analysis are just getting, it's just getting all the data into one place because they're, again, a lot of times they're coming from different sources. I mean, if they just want to align the timestamps, like if you're not a proficient coder, that's that's a lot of time. And and on top of that, analyzing each individual data point and then visualizing them as well. These are all things that need to be built on an individual basis for researchers. And so by abstracting that all that away, we basically save that first, you know, most difficult as in most time consuming, but actually just more mostly tedious work that researchers used to have to do. What about on, um, you know, once a study has started, you know, I, I have heard people drop out, you know, they just stop cooperating or, you know, whatever happens to them. Is there a way to put something into the analytics package where let's say you have a cohort of 100 and you're allowing for, you know, a 10% dropout. But now throughout the study, you know, it's a six month study, you're in month three, uh, you've had eight drop out. Now you're getting to a danger zone where the study could, you know, lose this statistical significance of too many more drop out. Are you able to monitor things kind of in real time as it goes to see if the statistics are holding or, you know, other problems are creeping in? 
Yes, uh, yeah, we are. That's exactly what we basically provide. I think the the problem with dropouts is it basically comes down to adherence and motivation. And so what we've seen is that yeah, we we can let you know in real time if you're you know if your project is hitting the danger zone, but that's less useful because you there's limited things that you can do on the other side the you know practical things that we have been able to help researchers with are essentially setting up your studies in ways that you know we've seen so many research projects we've run so many of these projects uh, you know even if they're run through our partners we've been a part of the process and so there's lots of things that can be done to help incentivize help keep the participants engaged you know there's a balance in terms of how much how tedious your tasks need to be you know maybe you front load a lot of things right you do a like you get a baseline you front load a bunch of things and so so you do all your most tedious things in the beginning and then after that you mostly passive data collection and then at the end you want to do a baseline again then at the end not only do you have it you also have the reward and then potentially you also give them a report at the end as well so there's a lot of like small things that can be done to optimize and bring in more value to the participants and make it less about them just being a passive participant and them being more like an active like interested party which very very does does wonders for motivation and does wonders for adherence as well and what about in the building of a study you know, if someone's trying to achieve a certain p-value and they expect a certain variation in these, you know, variables that are being tested, could your modeling pick out, all right, to really round out this cohort and make sure that you're within, you know, you're going to get the right data, you're looking for this, that, or the other and you know, in five more additional people that you want to subscribe to the study? Like, is there any way to do that where, again, you're helping in the initial shaping as well? So two parts of this question. So right now, that's not something that we do in terms of the early stage of like, we're basically, this is basically in the recruitment stage, but actually in the next six months, we're going to, we're going to release some, some stuff related to this, which is basically want to take the entire, we're looking at the entire research flow from initial recruitment all the way to final paper publication and see all the steps in there that we can basically support or, or be like the one, you know, one stop shop to kind of solve these problems. So in about six months, we will have more definitive updates in terms of exactly what we're doing on patient recruitment side. Um, But, you know, Suffice it to say, you know, after, you know, having over 100,000 participants join platform research projects and a lot of them interested in joining other research projects, we do have some, let's say, uh, unique expertise and, and some some customer base to, to build that off of. And so eventually I do see LabFront as a solution that really starts from the very beginning of the research cycle all the way to the research publication. And then also having some stuff for around funding as well, to, uh, being able to make generate revenue off of research funding, but uh, sorry, off of the research that you do. But what you're talking about right now in terms of supporting them in, in this space, they're very limited. However, the second part of your question or the other, other way that I understood it was, you know, there is a potential to, you know, if you know what you're looking for, to set that up within LabFront in a way that you can directly, very quickly see if there's results already. So if there's not enough results or there's not enough users and you're finding, about, finding out about that, like, two, three weeks into the study because you realize, oh, I need more data points or I need more either, you know, these the users are too similar or the data that we're getting is too similar. We, if we just, you know, double the amount of users, uh, we would know that pretty quickly. So you basically can, you know, do in another batch of recruitment and you wouldn't have to find out about this at the end. And that's that's really the biggest problem, which is that you find out at the end and it's already too late. You know, the time has passed, the budget has been spent, you know, you've been allocated and then you're, you end up with a result that it's harder to publish and, you know, that's a downhill spiral. So, you know, by knowing about it earlier, we, we still believe that that would still have an advantage. And so that's kind of another advantage that we provide at LabFront. Are there grand situations, you know, I don't know if NIH does this or private funding, whatever, but, you know, if you achieve certain um, 
either milestones or you provide X amount of data, they release funding for the next step. So if you're able to speed up the process so the data gets back to the potential funders quicker, I guess they could get the funding quicker and the whole thing can move faster. Is that yeah, part of the, uh, the software? So there are those types of projects that like, for example, SBIR that like release in phases. The majority of the projects that we work with are essentially just like one lump sum there. Again, we focus on the uh, earlier career. Again, we, we think that the biggest challenges are for the early career researchers. And then that's what's causing a lot of them to drop out of the system is funding challenges, fundraising challenges, and then, you know, the challenges of actually running a study as novel and new as one of your first research projects, right? That's basically what you're expected to do as a researcher. And it's not I don't, we think it's not, you know, that's pretty difficult, but we want to support them in any way we can because we don't want them dropping out from the industry and, you know, going into other, other places. So we think that's, that's the kind of brain drain that we're trying to avoid. Now, to address a second, I think you're talking about funding, there is, that is a major problem within research in general. And maybe I can answer it this way, which is there's a lot of problems right now with the way that funding is allocated and distributed and making it really difficult for a lot of researchers to, you know, basically have consistent funding, even if you are, I mean, we work with top researchers, right? We work with some some of these, you know, they have, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of citations. It's still a guessing game for them uh, when they get their funding. Now, their funding amounts are usually larger, but it's the same thing. They still, it's still, they spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on fundraising. And so one of the things that we've been building in, and this is where our the future, uh, that we, we believe the future lies, is having ways for researchers to actually directly monetize some of their research or, or to get, get some value out of the research that they create. Because right now, essentially, the only way for a researcher to really, really, you know, to really make significant money or, or even money, enough money to fund their research sustainably is essentially to, you know, as a researcher, you need to start a company and then that company needs to be sold or IPO, which is a really, you know, arduous task that you're asking a researcher. Then, you know, that's not their background. There's not an entrepreneur. And basically it only works for a very small segment of researchers because only a small segment have research that can directly be monetized into something like that. So maybe like drug discovery, for example. On the other hand, a lot of times researchers are doing very important and useful things. And, you know, it's proven by the citations that they have, right? Other researchers are citing their work and saying, oh, this was really useful. And so that I'm, I'm copying or I'm, I'm mimicking, you know, they're using their analysis or their methods to, and building upon it, right? That's that's how the citation system works. But right now, how it works, you know, is essentially I, as a researcher, if I'm, I, I read, I read this paper, I found this amazing paper and by this other researcher, uh, and then I try to understand their method. And then I try to recreate it and reverse engineer and recreate it from scratch. They, you know, they do write it out and that's the whole point, but it's still difficult, especially if I'm not necessarily, you know, the most experienced in this specific thing, even though I want to use it. I, I thought, oh, this is very interesting. I want to utilize this heart rate variability or, you know, this nonlinear heart rate variability measurement, but I'm not a specialty. This is not my specialty. I'm focused on the psychology side or I'm focused on the physiology side. It's, it's, it becomes a big barrier. So within LabFront and what we're building in, in in the coming year is a platform where it allows researchers to, you know, if they've already created the analysis and they they wrote the paper on it, instead of making everyone have to try to figure it out themselves and, and waste a bunch of time, they can build like basically like a little app, you know, basically an algorithmic app that just does what, you know, some of the work within the paper does. So when they, so when other researchers want to utilize it, they can just input the data, they, you know, input the data and then the output is 
the result that you know that what they were actually looking for the results of the that the paper was showing and then so essentially instead of building it themselves these other researchers can just pay a small nominal fee to the original researcher that created it and they can save you know literally days of time weeks of time and and, and get a, a solution that's very simple and, and and that way you know we basically can start to create the process where you know more, uh, the more papers that you write the more citations that you have essentially can also mean that your earning potential increases and so the idea is that over time, as more researchers utilize your work, you know, you get to a point in your career that eventually you maybe don't need to spend 50% of your time on fundraising, which is what even mature, tenured professors, researchers still do to this day. So essentially changing that entire dynamic to a point where there's a way for them to actually monetize directly, you know, with the work that they're doing, already doing. Well, what what if, yeah, what if I'm doing a study and yeah, I just, I'm picking up data on five different biomarkers that are not part of my study, but I got them. And then I want to monetize that for other researchers. Is there, you know, what if you build, what if you do studies and you make them amenable to a meta study later on? You know, you put them all into a platform, you get agreements, and then researchers can look, let's say again, they're, and I'm just making this up, they're uh, researching blood glucose. And they can see, oh, all these other studies were done and they might have data that we could use. Maybe we can contact them and pay them a little bit for the data they're not using and use that for ourselves and vice versa. So maybe a study could, earn some more money from the data that they're collecting by happenstance, but not using. And again, make a meta study more amenable later on. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, this is also, yeah, part of this entire like data sharing, data licensing kind of concept. So that's also another part of that we're we're working on as well. And you, you're touching on a lot of things that can make the research system a lot better. The issues that we run into right now are just there's a mindset issue right now, which with researchers are very protective of their data based around the way that you know essentially their their the attribution of work and you know the getting getting you know the proper you know the credit for for doing that study right. So there's a lot of so. The system that we have right now incentivizes this kind of zero-sum competitive approach versus uh, if if they were able to kind of change that a little bit, then yeah, there would be a lot more uh, appetite for share, you know, data sharing or even data licensing. Now, our approach is focusing more on the ownership of the actual participants themselves because participants, they are generating this data. So they automatically by default have some rights to the data, definitely to the data they generate, not necessarily to the data in that research project because there's other things that are happening, but for the data that they generate themselves, they definitely have rights to that. You know, they, they're literally the data originators. So we've been thinking about how do we create a system that allows those participants to essentially, you know, join another project while like, you know, and then, and then essentially licensing their data again for multiple use cases. So they've already collected it for this and they've, while they're at it, they also collected a bunch of other data, you know, that was collected on their Garmin, Dexcom and whatever. And it also fits another study, right? This, there's another study that fits exactly this, but they just want, you know, they all, they're, they're missing a blood test. Well, they can just, if they can just add on a blood test, you've now, you know, you have now meet the requirements to fulfill all the data that's needed for that study. That is a lot cheaper than doing the entire study from scratch. So there's a lot of things around there with a research participation gig economy, potentially, and data sharing and privacy that I'm, I'm very interested in exploring further. But the issues around privacy are very important. So I've been working with a d- different groups, including and just had a discussion with Oasis Labs based out of San Francisco, where they have these privacy protecting ways of of essentially sharing information, sharing results. Oh, like of information. Pseudonymizing it or something? 
Exactly. Like as you know, there's different methods such as like fully homomorphic encryption, FAG, or, you know, ZK, uh, zero knowledge. So potentially there's ways that you can actually license your information or the results of your information away without actually without actually exposing the data that you have. And so there are some very interesting things there that essentially let you infinite, like potentially in the future, you know, very future date, you can infinitely sell your data and but actually not for different specific research use cases without ever actually exposing the actual raw data itself so you can get results of the information without actually getting the giving up the actual information and in that case then you can actually control a lot of different things about you know in terms of your privacy and making sure that and then and it makes it a lot easier for people to decide that yeah this is something i want to do because essentially that data cannot be traced back to you in the sense of uh, de-anonymizing yourself all right well last question anecdotal evidence is demonized so you may have a, um, you know, a clinical trial of a cohort of uh, 100 people, but then millions of people may, may take the drug that you create. And wouldn't it be amazing to get the data from those people? You know, millions of people taking your drug, let's say, young, old, men, women, this, that, the other, all kinds of conditions. That would really help round out the effects of your drug. I mean, you could do a lot of tweaking, a lot of, I, I mean, I don't even know. It would suggest a whole bunch of things. Does any, do any researchers do that? And could you interface with them to then, again, once it's been commercialized, get all that anecdotal data and then put that back into the system to create better products? Yeah. So I'm not aware of the research that are currently working on this problem. I think the issues that we're they're seeing right now is just the incentive models around it, right? So it's essentially a system where, you know, no news could be bad news. And in that case, I don't want to know it kind of situation. If you pass the FDA, this is done, then essentially you don't want to really rehash that problem. And that's, again, this, I think this is an incentive problem that can be addressed. But I, I definitely think this is like, this is the direction we want to go, right? Which is that these things, uh, yeah, sure, we've done a clinical trial, but a clinical trial, again, can't, doesn't doesn't necessarily cover, you know, all, you know, it's not all the data possible. And if it's, if there's more data coming in and there's obviously going to be fewer ways to utilize this, you know, whatever intervention, this could be a drug, it could be anything and figuring out what's the most effective way to utilize it, right? And all that information right now is essentially lost in the ether. It's a lot of times it's not collected and it's really hard to utilize if it, even if it was. And so our kind of long-term vision is that people, you know, with a lot of the stuff that we'd mentioned today, have more of, of a hold on their data and their data rights and, you know, can kind of have that as a fundamental part of, you know, maybe this health passport where they themselves have control over these things and, and they have a way to manage and collect this information. And then and once they once you can solve that part of the problem, then essentially the, the rest of it is is kind of uh, is much, much, much more easy, uh, easier to do. And so I think this is the direction that data is going, that research and health data should be going, which is that there should be more patient and in personal privacy and personal rights to the, to your data, more control, more understanding, and more ways to utilize. All right, excellent. Well, Chris, what's the best way for people to find out more about LabFront, keep track of what you're doing? Yeah, so if you're a researcher and you're interested in using LabFront, just, just check us out at labfront.com. We also have social media profiles as well on, on Facebook and, and LinkedIn and Twitter. And then if you're actually interested in run, being a part of a project, uh, so we will be starting something soon. Uh, so just follow our socials where we can allow people to you know join really interesting cutting-edge research projects. Uh, we'll be doing, uh, we'll be working for some very cool researchers in the space of psych- psychedelics, for, especially for mental health, uh, as bunch of stuff in the mental health space, some stuff in the meditation space, uh, and and actually many more other things as well. So uh, if anyone's actually interested in being a part of research project themselves, yeah, just just follow along and you know we'll have information about that coming soon. All right, excellent. Well, Chris, it's been a great call. 
Sorry, I questioned you to death, but hopefully I, I got some good, uh, good info and food for thought. But thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. I love your questions and can't wait for the audience to hear this. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.